Welcome to Humans of Twitter, a podcast where we discover the stories behind the people behind the Twitter accounts. People that are interesting, opinionated and surprising. I'm your host, Steve Mulk, and today I'm speaking with someone who describes themselves as Master of the Dark Arts. No, actually, Bachelor of the Dark Arts with honours. Humans of Twitter is their stories in their words in a little more than 140 characters. Please welcome today's addition to the Humans of Twitter list, Casey Bonetto. Oh, thank you very much. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Casey, I feel like I should have introduced you like a boxing bout. Casey Bonetto! <laughs> it's one of those names, isn't it? It does have the big trail off the end of the surname. Bonetto! <laughs> and off the top rope, it's Bonetto! <laughs> oh, it's, so, it, it's wonderful to speak with you again, Casey. I'm really looking forward to this chat. Can I start by asking, in social settings, how do you introduce yourself? Uh, gee, it's a good question because often there um, – I guess I normally say uh, songwriter nowadays, which is a mm. little bit highfalutin for what I'd like. You know, it's a, it's a little bit, oh, <laughs> songwriter. Fancy, fancy. Um, but uh, And uh, indeed, for folks who have heard some of the songs that I've written, they might be saying, really, that's a little ambitious, that labelling. But I don't know – um, what else to say, really? I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I do a little bit of performing, a little bit of writing, a little bit of scoring, um, a jack of all trades and master of none. Oh, please, master of none. The, some of the stuff that you've done has appeared in more than one television show that I'm sure lots of people have watched. It's appeared in uh, people's, uh, you know, cabaret or comedy performances. You've musically directed a whole bunch of things been involved with things like Spicks and Specs. You're a crazy busy man. It's Well, it's it's the nature of the industry in Australia. I think most of the folks who are working in the field tend to be working in several different aspects of their chosen profession at once because they're just – it's a small market. There isn't enough mm. – if, if you were going to specialise, you'd be spending a lot of time feeling very lonely at home. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. It's not America where you can just be, I'm a this, yeah. and this is all I do. In Australia, the, the skill set has to be broader it, to keep you busy. Mind you, it's kept you very busy. It has. It's been a, it's been a good, uh, I mean, 10 or so years, really, or even longer than that, I guess, because uh, uh, Keating, I think, was the thing that most... Uh, that, that gave me any kind of profile, which meant that mm. you know, folks said, come and work on this or on that. But... Um, but uh, I felt just as busy before that, even when I was unemployed. <laughs> was was music, or is music, something that has ruled your life? Like uh, you know, in the with an iron fist, with an iron <laughs> fist. Um, no, it was uh, yes. I guess from the from the from the sort of you know primary school, high school days of, uh, I probably even in uh, primary school when uh, my first grade teacher brought in a guitar. Oh, and and she was, you know she used to bring in a guitar I think once a week and would would play songs and it was so that seemed like oh yeah that's a that's a good thing to be able to do and my elder sister was also um, is also a, a guitarist and singer and that was sort of uh, inspirational in that way bust out some some Patsy Bisco yeah oh, absolutely uh, Peter Coombs <laughs> oh, back in the day there was some Bisco definitely. And uh, but but it was more the tunes of the, of the day, you know, the tunes mm. of the. Uh, uh, I guess that was the early to mid seventies. 
So the the, wow. the things that were, you know, the tie yellow ribbon around the old oak trees and the yeah, songs like that that were just very sort of um, straightforwardly but but acoustically pleasant to play. Which is your weapon of choice when you do sit down and make the noises that are musical? It it kind of depends on what I'm writing for. There are there are aspects in which guitar is the um, uh, the weapon of choice just because it's so accessible to me and it was kind of my first instrument. But for other things, particularly for scoring things, uh, the piano gives you so much more access to mm. uh, not only keyboard sounds themselves, but sort of, you know, nowadays orchestral sounds and things like that, 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 uh, I, I mean, I, th- I think, I think more formally about music on the, uh, on the keyboards, on the piano, uh, which is ironic because I'm not a very good piano or keyboard player at all, uh, but more sort of uh, from the gut or emotionally when I'm playing with the guitar. It, I, I have dabbled a bit my whole life in playing. I'd I love it. It's it's just a, an all-consuming passion, and I've always looked on it at some friends that, that make music for a living in its various forms, and I just kind of go, oh it must be so fun to do the thing that you enjoy and all of those sorts of things. And then I talk to them, they go, it's really hard work sometimes. Is that your experience? It is uh, because of, of, of nothing more than I've, I've, I've done a talk about this before, actually, the, the tyranny of the blank page. <laughs> uh, the hardest thing to do is to, to sit down in front of the blank page and, and know that you must uh, write something. There's, I think there's a, a, a classic saying it about writers in particular that um, uh, nobody likes to write, but everybody loves having written. Yeah, and that's gosh. and that's the, getting over that hump. The ironic thing, though, is I find that uh, the anticipation is the biggest hump to get over. Once you're down and actually sitting there and writing, that part of the process I find is 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 great fun. It's yeah. uh, it, it's very enjoyable, but when you look ahead and all you see is the blank page that needs to be filled with something and you're not quite sure what, that that can be, uh, you know, let's... Uh, I'm listening to my voice intoning, you know, that can be like... the mo-, And I'm thinking, you know, it ain't coal mining, all right? It's, uh, it's, it's a perfectly pleasant way. At its worst, it's a perfectly pleasant way to, uh, to make a living, but it, it certainly it can be more than that too. Are you doing the thing that Casey in year 11 thought he would be doing? Uh, in year 11, I've got to take my mind back to uh, the, travel with me back to 1986. Um, yeah, I, I think probably so. I mean, I've been incredibly fortunate. I, I spent a lot of my 20s uh, playing in, you know, a, a band, like a pub band and all that sort of stuff. And uh, and. I don't know that I thought that there was... I mean, I thought that was what I was going to do. Whether I could make any kind of living out of it was was a completely different question. Uh, that seemed unlikely and, you know, continues to seem unlikely year by year. But uh, it, it uh, you know, I've been very lucky in terms of the projects I've worked on and, and the folks who I've worked with. Are there a couple that stand out as, as faves either for what it achieved uh, or the fun you had? Yeah, there, there are. I mean, uh, Keating obviously stands out from a from a sort of the point of view of a a profile raising thing. First, mm. because that was two different 
Uh, that was incredibly lucky on several fronts. Firstly, it was the the timing of it was just it was at that moment in the reign of John Howard when uh, the sort of counter voice was rising from the population in general, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So it was um, it, it was you know we were very lucky in terms of being able to take advantage of that. We had great people. There were two different versions of that show. One of which was a um, the Drowsy Drivers here, here, all sort of friends and all that sort of stuff here in Melbourne. The original version of the show, we, which we ended up touring around Australia on our own, you know, on our own dime. Yeah. Uh, first of all, and that was uh, that was great fun because they're old friends and it was a really good fun show to do. And when Neil Armfield asked if uh, Belvoir could do it. Uh, my greatest sort of fear was that recreating that kind of camaraderie and feeling amongst the band and, and you know, the performers of the show would be really difficult uh, when it was being done, you know, with a professional theatre company and all that sort of stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, in, that was a really, really pleasant experience putting together that second band just because I was so ready for it to go off the rails and be, you know, <laughs> have cast members strutting about not getting it at all. And it was, it was almost the reverse of that. You know, they, they sort of came in and went, Oh, what can we do to make this better? Oh, da-da-da. how about this? And throwing in extra ideas. So that was, that was a wonderful experience. Um, apart from that, there's been a few uh, little shows that, that, that we've done that I've done here with friends that have been um, terrific fun. They're, you know, none of them are, are sort of as have been as high profile as, as Keating. But mm. then you sort of, you know, there are very few shows you write that you sort of go, all oh, right, we're going to tour this all around Australia. And it's going to be, you know, <laughs> it, it takes a certain kind of bolshiness and about uh, and, and surety about your subject matter and all that sort of stuff. I think one of the ones we've had the most fun with in the last few years is the Terminativity, which is the Christmas show mm. uh, that uh, Nick Cadet and I wrote in, um, uh, I think we did it in 2010, 2011, um, which was uh, the Terminativity. It was exactly what it sounds like. It was, as, as someone described, it was a mixture of the greatest story ever told and the Nativity. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, and that featured, you know, uh, Stephen Gates and Scotty Edgar and uh, Mike McLeish and Aurora Kurth and Andrew McClelland and Lawrence Lung and uh, Tegan Higginbotham and Adam McKee, like a whole cast of different folks, wow. um, uh, which which Kath Woodfield, who produced it, noted correctly, made it a ridiculous, you know, uh, prospect in terms of, actually making any money on the production but um but it was great fun and uh and uh you know there were songs written for that that were that have sort of lived beyond it which is great do you prefer the uh i guess the lone nature of the scoring and the writing and, and that sort of stuff and i appreciate there's collaborative stuff that plays into it as well or the broader, because it really does become collaborative when we've got the band together and we're giving voice to this stuff. Which is your your preferred bag? Oh, I love working with the band because uh, the, that feeling of of everyone sort of creating the arrangement is, uh, mm. to me, that's part of the lifeblood of music. That was 
uh, Keating has now been sorry. I keep talking about Keating. Um, it, it's now That's been right. sort of shopped out for amateur productions and things like that. And on that um, sheet that they send out to amateur productions, or hopefully they still do. I'm not sure that uh, that uh, they send out all the the pack and whatnot. But on that sheet, I I said, you know, in in response to requests for can we have the you know orchestral score or the proper band score? It, it's sort of it's meant to be built from chord charts and the band in the room, right? You know, so yep. that they make their sound the way they want to, and uh, they're not copying anyone else's thing. Uh, yep. And that, to me, is that yeah. You want all of that because you want everyone sort of invested in it and uh, and and part of the creative process. But um, I mean, scoring can be very satisfying, but uh, the you don't have as much of that in in my experience. There's not as much of the joy of music involved in it because the joy comes from mm-hmm. that interaction, that response. I mean, music is such a brilliant and such a what originally drew me to it i think and what what draws everyone to it i think to some degree to playing music is it's not a zero-sum game in the way that so many other uh so many other interactions are you know someone provides someone works and provides a service and someone else receives a service they pay for the service and the first person gets the money and you know therefore they are compensated for their work and all that sort of stuff. But the thing about playing music is that it's great fun to play and hopefully if it's fun to listen to as well, then everyone profits. You know, there there is no mm-hmm. um, there is no sort of equivalence that has to be struck where, where someone walks away going, well, I'm a big loser from tonight. <laughs> um, at its best, it's a it's a it's an experience in which everyone wins. And I guess that that is true of all art, but um uh, but that's what really draws me to music, I think. Music is amazing. I love it. And I love hearing people that are connected with it and engaged with it talk about it. It's always such a joy. What's your superpower, Casey? What do you do really well? <laughs> um, uh, it, well, what do I think I do really well and what do I actually do really well are probably <laughs> two separate you know, two separate questions. Um, I'll take both for $20, Eddie. Uh, all right. Um, I think... I'm, uh, I've got, I mean, uh, certainly I've got good ears in terms of, um, uh, music itself, in terms of the playing of Mm. music. I can, I, by which I don't mean, oh, what, what marvelous taste I have or anything like that. Not at all. In fact, often the reverse of that. Uh, I mean that in the very sort of technical musical sense, as in if someone's playing a chord and then plays another chord and then plays another chord, I can tell you what they are. Um, more or less, <laughs> as long as they, as long as they don't start playing any of that jazzy stuff. Um, <laughs> Flattened seven. Yeah. So what are you doing? What are you doing? You're wrecking everything. Um, but it's, I can, uh, yeah, I can, so I can, I can do that, which means I can do all right in terms of uh, working with a band uh, on the fly. You know, I, I can uh, call out chord changes and things like that as I'm singing and whatnot. And, and the, those are sort of useful skills for uh, an industry where you often find yourself flung into the the moment. Um, mm. So so that's useful. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm pretty good. I, I would say um, uh, my strength from a songwriting perspective is not musical at all. Um, it's It's probably lyric. Uh, 
and it's uh, I mean, it, as with all of these things, your strength is also inevitably your weakness. Uh, yeah, because when you specialize in anything, that becomes your voice, and therefore it beca- you know it becomes impossible for you to uh, to shake the associations of that or the the, the feelings of that. Uh, I'm I'm pretty good with scansion and rhyming structures, so which are the yep. the sort of um, which means that I'm I'm good at writing a certain type of song, but it doesn't make me good at writing songs. If you know what I mean, they're, <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah, no, I there are brilliant, brilliant songs. The songs that really move me often don't follow those precepts at all. Uh, they're often songs that are just sort of invested in in emotion and. and and crystallizing an idea and they're not concerned about whether there's an internal rhyme in the third line that <laughs> echoes the internal rhyme in the second line, you know? Uh, so I certainly, that's what I mean by my strength being my weakness. I think that kind of stuff can, can very easily be a trap where you start absorbing yourself in the, in the technical structure of a lyric so much that you don't listen to your heart, which is saying, you know, this has got this whole thing has got to be shortened. It's got to go somewhere else, but um, but I do enjoy that stuff. I do. It is like a little um, uh, intricate linguistic puzzle, trying to trying to map out internal rhymes and trying to get something to just the right scansion, so that you know every second syllable will fall exactly on the spot. You need it to in order to be so. You know that that kind of um uh, scansion of uh, i guess is is a superpower and a kryptonite yeah gosh who who would be the guys that wrote supercalifragilisticexpialidocious that's a nightmare yeah that's right they uh, they were in the um that last tom hanks movie weren't they? not sully the um the one oh, about saving uh, mr banks yes yes in uh, uh i remember them what did they uh Oh, I can't remember on the footage. I think they were one of those sort of Oscar clips they were showing of the footage. Mm. They had one of them. Uh, yeah, they were stepping through the stomp, the one of the songs, and uh, uh, Emma Thompson was playing um, MJ Travers. I think. Yes. Said, and what's what's that word? That that word that's in the middle of the song. That's ridiculous. There shouldn't be any made up words, you know. At which point the songwriters just quietly shuffled supercalifragilisticexpialidocious <laughs> back into the back into the sheet music. Oh, so yeah, no, I really enjoyed that, and, and it was, I think, a great, um, I guess, an, an emergence because the the performance by Emma Thompson uh, of Travers in that film. Everyone, I think, if you hadn't read or, or done any sort of research around her, you would think, oh, that's a little bit, you know, brusque. She's a little bit sharp. And then during the credits, they roll archival footage of her meeting with the actual, uh, uh, you know, composers and, and Walt Disney. She was sharp. Yes. She was, she had some pretty direct views about how Mary Poppins should be. Um, and understandably, given the nature of the tale and, and how it Absolutely. was such a, a, a close personal tale for her. Absolutely, but but given the time to it at which she was doing it, oh yeah, um, yeah, that's 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 sort of uh, would have taken incredible bravery, you know, incredible because um, there are so many people who would at that time who would have been going, look, you're a woman, just shut up, will you, and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So yeah, 
and full credit to Walt Disney, I mean, for all of his foibles and faults, he persevered. He really wanted to tell that story mm. and did everything he could to win, to win her over. That was crazy good. It's such an interesting contrast, isn't it, though, between that, that, um, uh, that writer trying to protect what is spiky and British and sort of uh, angular about the product mm. and then Disney going, yeah, I totally, uh, yeah, I can get that. I totally get that. At the same time, this is Disney. Yeah, that's we right. Do, we don't, spiky and angular, that's, that's not our thing. Yeah, we want everyone to love this, not just go, wow, that was a nice story. We want it to be rounded. The kids need to be into it as well. Yeah, crazy yeah. good. Yeah. What's your favourite takeaway food choice? Oh, it's probably, see, it used to be that, that I couldn't walk past a Bain Marie without it, uh, without it singing to me. Uh, and then it just got to a certain time where it's sort of like, yeah, that's you've got to stop that because uh, <laughs> yep. there's there's the you are becoming the human Bane Marie, and uh, and but oh no, I still can't go past if there's a Bane Marie with a nice crisp looking, I don't not the soggy ones, but a nice crisp looking spring roll in there in one of the things, still can't go past it because there's nothing like the crunch around the outside of the spring roll, you know, the bit where it's folded over at the end. Mm-hmm. If that's just right, nice and crispy, mm, and you can't go past it. And the nuclear level of heat that comes from the stuff inside. That's right, that's right. If they've done it properly, then you should be in pain. One or two bites in, you should be, you know, <laughs> shrieking in scalded agony. <laughs> it's like you've bitten into a rolled up piece of the sun. Yes, Oh, oh yeah. I could have a rolled up piece of the sun in batter. That would be nice. Can someone get onto that? <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah, what's happening, food technologists? Sort your gear out. <laughs> um, what can't you talk? Yes. No, no, no. I was, I was going to say, I think I think that, that definitely would be the one. Although I have been known to go a potato cake in times mm. of trouble. Controversially, uh, potato cake. Yeah, I know. It's not. It's not the world's most glamorous uh Bain Marie occupant but uh the in its humility I think there is wisdom there's nothing like a good one that's fresh you can have like people put too much batter on them sometimes and I think that takes away or the potato can be too thick there is a real science to a good potato cake slash potato scholar and it's time that more government funding was invested in- oh please let let's do it if there's a Pons Institute oh no there isn't a Pons Institute really is there <laughs> Um, I, I was gonna. I, I had visions of a potato cake institute for a moment, but never mind. Sorry. Anyway, stick back to the back to matters at hand. Maybe we need to to have a raising awareness day, um, <laughs> the twenty two potato cake challenge or something. I, I don't know how we do it, but I, look, I'm all for it. Potato cake the musical. Um, it's not before time. Arts funding and potato cake funding brought together in harmony. I'm there. Hang on a sec. Let me just grab the. I've got a twelve string over here. We can do it. Hang on. Potato cake, potato cake (laughs) You're the best thing I can make But what's the secret to how you bake Potato cake Potato cake Orchestra in there, potato cake (laughs) Alright, no, no, probably not (laughs) That's brilliant do your best oh, for goodness sake. You know, it's going to be, it's, it's going to be a winner. Itself. 
They'll be lining up around the block for potato cake, Steve, and I'll cut you in. Mm, oh, look, I, I just want reflected glory, Casey. <laughs> I'm happy to stand on the sides and say, yeah, I was there when that happened the first time. It was magical. Oops, hang on. I'm knocking my microphone, I think. Now, I got all excited about the potato cake. Oh, how can you just not? unwind myself. All good. Thank you, sir. That's, dude, that was amazing. Thank you. That was really good. <laughs> I'm really enjoying playing the twelve string. It's it's. Um, oh, I can understand. It's, bought, it's amazing. Well, I got one about. I got this one in New York. <laughs> Wanker alert! I got this Please. one in New York five years ago. Um, <laughs> Kath and I went over for um, Eddie Perfect and Lucy Cochran's wedding. Actually, yes, awesome. And uh, which was beautiful. Bought yourself a present. Yeah, beautiful. It was in Central Park, and and Ed had asked me to play one of my songs at it. And I hadn't brought a guitar over, so I just went to uh, one of those sort of guitar shops in New York, one of the the big one, actually. I can't even remember what it's called, but it's uh, uh, sort of the big guitar store around 34th or something like that. And uh, and bought myself, uh, was going in there to go, I'm going to spend $100 no more and get a guitar. And walked hmm. in and there was a 12 string there for $100 and I've never had a 12 string before. So I was sort of like, oh, I'm that's it. That's it. Whatever it is, I'm going to be playing, you know, this, this 12 string sound at, at Eddie's thing, whether he wants it or not, that's what I'm going to play. <laughs> and picked it up. And and for those who don't know, a 12 string has, well, obviously it has 12 strings, but each, it's a, like a normal six string guitar, but uh, each string has two strings either tuned in unison to make this sound. So it's sort of, you can hear it phasing bet slightly between the, t the sound of the two strings. Or it's got two strings uh, that are an octave apart, so they sound like this. When you play them. And so, it, it, sorry, I might be going into way too much detail. No, it's here. great. But... Um, uh, the thing is that there there are certain things that through my childhood I've, I had always picked up the six string guitar and gone I'm playing this you know let me play this song this is one of my favorites and you play it and you go mm, doesn't quite sound right and I picked up the twelve string and and suddenly realized oh because they were playing it on a twelve string you know so you go oh. you know you hear the, the the sort of sound of the twelve string on it and it's yeah what. It's it's what actually makes that sound sound that way, which yeah. I should have realised long ago, and I, I didn't. And then, so it was a lovely sort of sudden moment of revelation. Anyway, sorry. No, no, that's there are so many questions I have in all of this. Just <laughs> even that little bit of conversation. Um, I have to reveal the very first guitar that I bought myself was a 12-string. Uh, and I, in part, regret to this day that I traded it in for my first electric guitar. But I have aspirations to get... Um, a, a 12 string again to join the, the menagerie of guitars I have at home. <laughs> but I doubt I'll get one for $100. How the heck I don't know. did you manage to find I one mean, that sounds that good for 100 bucks? I, I presume it was just, um, I presumed and continue to presume that it's just sort of a crappy knockoff. But just recently I've, I've sort of tightened up the truss rod under the neck and put, mm -hmm. you know, a heavier gauge on it and all that sort of stuff. Sort of like a, um, 
uh, improve or bust program for it. You know, (laughs) this will either snap the neck of the guitar or it will settle down and be a a bit better to play because it always used to have a really sort of uh, high action, you know, which makes which on a 12 strings kind of disastrous because the strings obviously will be bending at different, they're an octave apart, they'll be bending at different. uh, pitches by the time you move up the neck, yes. um, but uh, this one seems to have settled down quite nicely with its new it's got a lovely ring to it. So I'm, I'm, sounds amazing. I'm enjoying it. It's, it's it's just made its way back into the arsenal just recently. <laughs> That's great. Gosh, Casey Bonetto, I just want to come down to Melbourne and play guitar with you now. All right, let's do it. Come on. Yeah, that has to happen. I've got the electric. Here's the electric over here. It's uh, oh. I haven't got it plugged in, so very disappointing by comparison. <laughs> um, we have we have the bass here. Hang on. Also not plugged in. Oh, wait a sec. Actually, I can turn my mic off. Oh, no, I don't know if that worked at all. That totally worked. <laughs> oh, gosh, dude. All right, we, we, we're going to have a party here, Steve. Come on, let's do it. Not oh, the trumpet. It's got to happen. Let's this do the trumpet. This has got to happen. <laughs> <laughs> We've got the tambourine. We've got the what else? There's a drumstick there. It's not really anything. We've got uh, oh, it's a little little guitar kalele. We've got there's another tambourine. We've got the keyboard over here. There we go. Sorry, I'll stop with this madness now, Steve. Xylophone time. Ahoy. Oh, wow. It's like we just had uh, one of the presenters on Play School take some meth and then show us all the instruments they had. <laughs> hey, kids! Kids! There's a little bongo here! Oh. <laughs> Melodica! I'll stop now, Steve. Sorry. That's... Oh, no, Casey, that's awesome. That is so, so great. I'm definitely, definitely going to have to have uh, some, some Casey music time when I come down <laughs> next. That's amazing. I feel, is there a TV... I, I, sh- I feel like... It, yes, I feel like it should be Casey music time. Okay, kids. <laughs> <laughs> Just try and warp young brains, young developing brains, by wandering around a room going, This is where the melodica is! Like Bobcat Goldthwait doing music. <laughs> How you are not pitching this to the ABC <laughs> for their schedule next year is beyond me. I've been pitching it every day. Then now they, <laughs> they won't take my calls. I'm blocked. <laughs> Hello? Is that the ABC? <laughs> I have music! Oh Christ! It's him again! Quick, quick! Put him on hold. Put him on. Transfer him to Lawrence Mooney. Lawrence will sort him out. <laughs> Do you know what a djembe is? 
I like the idea of that the very disturbed <laughs> music show. Let's make oh. a song, kids! <laughs> Go and pick up something expensive of your parents and smash it. <laughs> I like it. I think I think it's a winner. Actually, it probably is. We should do something like that. Anyway. <laughs> Let, let us digress, and I get to ask you this let, question. Let, now, let, Casey. Us, let us undigress, undigresses, okay. undigresses, please, Steve. <laughs> What's your favourite TV show at the moment? What's really uh, vibing you out that you love to watch? Uh, let me think. Very much enjoyed Better Call Saul. Um, oh, check, yes. Yeah. Um, enjoying uh, watching bits of Harmon Quest so far because it's it, it's yeah. uh, propelling me back to. Uh, to D and D high school D and D days, mm-hmm. uh, which obviously uh, I know the the one that everyone's talking about is Stranger Things in that respect, and I haven't yet uh, seen it. I dive in, definitely dive in. Yeah. Um, what else? The night. For those that don't know what Harmon Quest is. Oh yeah, it's um, for those. Uh, Dan Harmon was the uh, creator and chief writer of Community. And then famously not for a season of it, and then famously back again for another season of it. <laughs> yes. um, he's uh, he's definitely got a bit of an uh, an addled mind, but as well as doing a community, he does a podcast called Harmon Town, in which um, he just sort of holds forth on a variety of topics in a some sometimes disturbed manner. And they fell into the habit towards the end of that podcast, which you know each episode goes for about two hours. For a while, they fell into the habit in the last half an hour of it of playing a little bit of Dungeons and Dragons because one of the one of the crew is a very experienced game master, and um, they uh, ended up pitching it as a show of its own accord, a uh, half an hour spot in which a group of them and one guest performer play uh, playing an ongoing Dungeons and Dragons campaign, uh, which is partly animated. Uh, yes. So it cuts back and forth between the the sort of animated characters on the adventure and the folks in the room playing the game, which is a very um, intelligent way to to bridge that divide because that is always yeah. with those role playing games. A lot of the fun is happening around the table, and then some of the fun is happening in the imagination. So to be able to do portray both and keep the lines of delineation between them is uh, is very. Uh, you know, it's a very successful way to do that. I remember seeing a billboard for it when I was in LA recently and it made me hunt it out and I watched it and I loved it. Uh, and it also made me think, what would the jocks circa Revenge of the Nerds era think of the fact that we're televising Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> games now? Well, I'm sure it'd be their worst nightmare, but as ever, I'm sure the jocks would not be watching it in any case. They'd be on, they'd be on the other channel where, you know, NBC are doing... Monday night football for uh, for all eternity, uh, and uh, you know, and I think that's that's fine. I think there's there's room for all of those different um, uh, cultural subgenres and uh, and whatnot to 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 have their own heads esteem. That's good. Totally, and and also they would end up with their underpants on their heads or something somehow. Yeah, so, that's right. Because the, the nerds will win. That's what we learned. That's how so, that's how history tells us. The nerds win, and in fact, the nerds have now won. Given that even the jocks, air quotes, 
are all nerds again and it's okay to be a nerd. Yeah, but it's it's sort of, it, it's scary now, isn't it? Because the nerds have won and in the process of winning, uh, you see things like Gamergate and whatnot springing up and you're sort of like, geez, yeah. guys, you're losing even as you're winning. <laughs> Right. This this notion of oh we were bullied at school too. I mean I was bullied at school too, but I, you're not going to thump around going I must protect my status as a victim at all cost. <laughs> what is this thing called male privilege? I have never heard of it because I was bullied at high school. And they say no, sorry dudes, doesn't work that yeah. way. I'm a white male aged 25 to 42. Nobody listens yeah. to me. That's crazy. <laughs> Who hath suffered more than I? <laughs> the slings and arrows, doth. Yes. Indeed. Casey, what are you going to achieve in the next 12 months? Well, what are you, my mother? Jeez, Steve, what a question. Um, yes. Now, uh, what am I going to achieve in the next 12 months? There's um, hopefully, uh, and I say this every year until it becomes like a sort of a little mantra, hopefully... Uh, a a long term piece. There's a couple of um, mm. ideas that I've had that I don't want to, you know, queer by exposing to the sunlight yet. I've got to let them cook for a bit, but um, I want to chase one of them down and actually have have a work that I can say, oh, this is you know something else uh, to yep. pursue. Because there's always it, it's very easy for because of the nature of the industry, as we were saying before, and the necessity of having a a finger in uh, sort of a bunch of different pies. Uh, it's very easy for that process to take over your creative life entirely. And uh, I mean, everyone will have experience of this, no matter what their job. Uh, there are things that you want to accomplish that always seem to continually slip into the, well, I'll do that at some stage in the future. Cause there's this stuff that needs to be done this week, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, that tends to happen in, in this field as much as any other. So I'm, I'm hoping to be able to clear some time and get, get stuck into some, uh, uh, yeah, some sort of longer-term ideas. But in the meantime, uh, little bits of scoring, little mm. bits of emceeing, little bits of live gigging, uh, yeah, um, and, and, and we'll see what happens along the way. Pitching Casey's music show. Yeah, absolutely, obviously. Trying to work out how to maintain that Bobcat Goldthwait voice even for, you know, <laughs> 10, 10 <laughs> minutes. Without totally wrecking your yeah, voice. Yeah, yeah, without finishing each show. And which could be kind of funny, though, if you do a 10-minute episode and at the end of every 10 minutes it's like, oh, okay, kids, see tomorrow. <laughs> Just become a pack-a-day smoker. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That would be the vibe. Hey, Casey. Yes, dear. Thank you so much for the chance to speak with you today. Please know that the things that you've said are very special and you're highly valued, my friend. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. And and you in turn, sir. Thank you very much for the opportunity to come on and talk. And the things you've said are special and you are highly valued too. And at the same time, may I say, you, dear listener, you too are highly valued. And the things that you've said while listening to this, for instance... Does that Bonetto ever shut up? Are also important. Everyone embraces. That's right. Scene. Very clearly you're a person that is partial to the odd tweet. Are there other social accounts that you would want people to know about? Uh, Superfluity on Facebook always, which is the show, uh, the radio show that I do on, on Tuesday nights on Triple R in Melbourne. Uh, which is streamable from from 
anywhere in the galaxy, uh, which is myself, uh, Scott Edgar from Tripod, uh, Christos Chalkis, the author, uh, mm-hmm. Clem Basto, the writer, and the four of us just play music in an endless loop, as in someone plays a song, the next person has to play a song from their own collection that they feel relates to it in some way, in any way, but in some way and explain what the connection is and why the new song is important to them and they play it, then the third person has to follow the second person and so on and so forth. And it just goes round in and in an endless loop and it's lots of fun. That's well, Not only is that awesome, what a lineup! Yeah, it's terrific. Goodness me. It's terrific. Uh, I'm, Four nobodies, jeez. <laughs> Christos in particular is one of the... I mean, Scott plays terrific stuff from all over the shop and, and so does Clem. And Clem is sort of the newest addition to the team and she's been fantastic. But Christos is the one who comes in and says, here's some, you know, Venezuelan frog singing. <laughs> and, and, and we'll follow it with, you know, here's some Velvet Underground or something like, you know, he, he's just got a, a incredible appreciation for music. So, um, but it's great fun. It's great fun because we just get to sit down every Tuesday night and be surprised as we sort of spin for two hours in different directions. I tell you what, if he does bring in some more Venezuelan frog music, if someone doesn't follow that up with the crazy frog, you have missed an opportunity. Well, that's right. You see, that's the way it happens. Although I, I suspect that if I was following it, it was frog music, I'd have to play the Rainbow Connection. Of course. Mm. I saw a quick digression. I saw an interesting sketch today. Uh, a friend of mine is a puppeteer in Brisbane and he has just come back from New York, made some great connections. Uh, he showed a sketch that someone who was on the production team for the Muppet movie of how Jim Henson worked Kermit for the Rainbow Connection opening number. And he was in a bathysphere. Oh, wow. Yeah, of course yeah, he would have had to have been because it was on the log, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, he was in a small round thing with oxygen being pumped into it. He had a screen to see what Kermit was doing. His arm went into a rubber glove so the bathysphere could be sealed and then through the log and into Kermit. See, this is the um, this is the kind of stuff that Henson himself was very good at designing. I wonder if this was partly his design because uh, I remember they were talking about, uh, uh, Frank Oz was talking about the design of Big Bird, Carol Spinney yep. inside Big Bird. Uh who has a television screen inside Big Bird in order to see, you know, a little screen to be able to look down and see what Big Bird yeah. looks like from the outside. And apparently that design was was Henson's completely. Let's do it like this and with this and with the screen here and all that sort of stuff. And it, would have, it would have been so tight in that costume with it, like they didn't have nice flat screens or iPads back when they created Big Bird, right? No, no. So you can imagine, yeah, there's probably heat pouring off the back of this tiny little monitor oh. and you're in a feathered suit. Permanently sticking your arm in the air. Wandering around going, hap kadefki jekomen up says The most remarkable word I've ever seen. And because the costume wouldn't have been very forgiving in that you couldn't just go, all right, and cut, and then you just put your arm down so that Big Bird... Bends over like he's especially just kind of shoot, snapped his neck. Especially if you're shooting with kids. Can you imagine that? Oh, yeah. Like, and cut. Oh, Big Bird! <laughs> the bird died, Mommy! <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, it must have been supported, surely, in some way, though. You'd think maybe you could just take your your hand out of it and Big Bird's neck would still be upright, but uh, would be standing there um, you sort of placidly. Uh, expressionlessly what what um 
this suddenly occurs to me. What gender is Big Bird? I don't, I don't know. Because I, I was just in talking about it, I just went to use a gendered, you know, gendered pronoun and went, hang on. I don't think Big Bird has a gender. I mean, well, Big Bird has an agenda. Don't be mistaken. <laughs> Look, I'll do something that is very on this podcast. Let's Google with a Big Bird gender issues. Um, apparently, according to Wikipedia, Big Bird is a male. Oh, really? Uh, his uh, aliases, Grand Sonny, a nickname given to him by his granny bird. Uh, and he's also called Bird by his best friend, Mr. Snuffleupagus. Yes, who now everyone can see. That was very disturbing for me because that was one of the great traumas of my childhood. And then I tuned into a later episode at some stage, probably in the 90s, probably stoned, probably sitting on a couch, probably in St Kilda, and and realised that that, that suddenly everyone could see Mr. Snuffleupagus. Uh, yeah, it was so great to learn that because I, yeah, my entire Sesame Street watching career was no one knew him but us and Big Bird. Yeah, but in the background to that, as I understand it, of, of why they changed it, you were this. It was What's kind that? of, um, it's related to, it's related to pedophilia. I think it's related to the fact that, um, uh, you know, it's that, a secret that only right. we have. It's a secret; no one else can see me. Okay, it's just you and me. Um, and they went, yeah, no, we're not encouraging that kind of thing anymore. Uh, every, everyone can see mysterious strangers who want to be your friend. Um, yeah, wow. Because I get it. Like, I understand the intention of Snuffleupagus was that he was um, like kids having imaginary friends in that it's okay to yeah. have imaginary friends. Because he's Big Bird's, you know, what everyone thinks is an imaginary friend, but we all know he's real. But the adults think he's imaginary. But yeah, I, the danger territory of we can have secrets that mum and dad don't need to know about gets a bit iffy. Okay, yes. Uh, sorry, I'm doing my own Googling. I can tell you the writers felt that by having the adults refuse to believe Big Bird, despite the fact that he was telling the truth, they were scaring children into thinking that their parents would not believe them if they had been sexually abused and that they would just be better off remaining silent. Oh, gosh. So sorry, that just got incredibly heavy out of a conversation about Big Bird, but that was the uh, the context of Mister Snuffleupagus. Um, yes, let's not even start on Elmo. No, let's not start on Elmo. That's going to lead us down a dark path. <laughs> this yeah, this took a very big turn very quickly. <laughs> this has been humans of Twitter, and I can confirm that at Casey Bonetto is indeed human. Ah, thank you. I'm I'm glad to be. Do, do I get some kind of tick on my Twitter account now? Not the blue tick, obviously, but some kind of um, human shaped tick. I don't know. Yes. Excellent. Thank you very much, Steve. I will wear it with pride.